Hello, everyone. I am Alicia Swamy. I'm here with Eric Johnson and Keely Severson, and we are exposing mold. Today, we are here with Dr. Judy Safrier. She is a holistic adult and child psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, and a Harvard Medical School faculty member. She currently has a private practice in the Boston area, and she works with environmentally injured patients. Wow, that's awesome. I love that fact. Um, So, uh, Dr. Safrier, I originally found you through a popular publication called Psychology Today, and you wrote an article about mold toxicity and how it can relate to psychiatric illnesses. Now, I was completely blown away, as I mentioned earlier. First, because I'm thinking, how the heck did you even get this approved for publishing? But second, I was excited because there aren't many, there aren't very many psychiatrists that recognize the health effects of mold toxicity or even know to connect it to psychiatric illnesses. Could you maybe speak more about your your experience in this arena? Yeah. So, I mean, in my practice, um, some people find me because they know that I have expertise in treating mold toxicity and that I'm a psychiatrist and they're suffering from psychiatric symptoms, as are many patients who have been exposed to toxic mold who are um, unable to deal with the biotoxins. But a lot of times patients come to see me and they don't know that what is behind their psychiatric symptoms is mold. And like a very, very high percentage of people who you know, I mean, I'm usually not the first stop in terms of seeing a psychiatrist. They've seen other psychiatrists. They've had lots of medication trials. They are sort of burned out on the conventional approach. And then they come to me and they don't know that they never heard of mold toxicity. And it's because of my awareness of it that I talk with them about it and do the testing and um, then, you know, offer them treatment for it. Now, you say that you do testing, and I know that I saw on your website that you're actually testing all of your patients for mycotoxins. In not their- all of them. All of them. No, not all of them. Suspicious of. Oh, okay. I mean, people come to see me for other stuff as well. Oh, okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for correcting me on that. So you actually, the ones that you suspect maybe, you know, have some sort of exposure, you're actually doing a urine mycotoxin test. So how do you... How do you get people who don't know that they may have a mold exposure to say, yeah, I'll do this test, you know, because it's kind of a left field request. And, and well, what it's you're really doing. not difficult if they're suffering and nobody has been able to figure out what's going on. And I tell them about that many, many of their symptoms may be related to this. Uh, usually they're extremely willing and interested. It's a relief to um, potentially figure out what is going on and what is wrong. Absolutely. And what what percentage of those patients that you suspect are being exposed actually come back positive with um I would say I would say 85 to 90 percent. 85 to 90 percent. Wow. Because you know like the it's usually not just that they have anxiety and depression, but they have food sensitivities and they have rashes and they have chronic fatigue and they have um, aches and pains and all kinds of other symptoms in addition to their anxiety and depression. Usually it's not just purely a psychiatric syndrome, although sometimes it is. So then how do you treat the ones that don't come back? The, those That 10% where 
they nothing comes back on their mycotoxin test, do you then kind of revert to the traditional psychiatric um, model of, of treating them or? No, like I'm thinking of a patient who I was sure she was going to test positive for mold. And I was very astonished to see that she didn't. Now, it is possible that her test was a false negative. Like that can happen. Like if a person has such impaired detoxification that they're not even shedding any mycotoxin into their urine, it could potentially be a false negative. But in her case, um, there's a lot of autoimmune stuff going on. And um, when she eliminated certain food triggers, it really has helped a great deal. And um, also, like there's a um, medication, it's like one of the only pharmaceuticals that I routinely prescribe. It's called low-dose naltrexone. And uh, it's like naltrexone is a medication that was used or is used to treat addiction. And it can be, you know, gotten at CVS or Walgreens, a conventional pharmacy in doses of 50 to 100 milligrams. But low-dose naltrexone is dosed at much tinier doses. Like I have patients that are on 0.25 milligrams or 0.5 milligrams up to 4.5. And it's like an immune system modulator. And she, and for some patients, especially those who have um, like identified autoimmune conditions, it can be like a real game changer. So that has also been extremely helpful to her. And then there's um, something else that I recommend routinely to patients, um, which is a mind-body program um, called the Gupta program, which is, um, it's a, something that you download from the internet. And it's a streamed series of videos um, and audio guided meditations. And it is a limbic system retraining tool. And many patients who have mold toxicity also have mast cell activation. And their whole nervous system is in a chronic state of fight or flight. And when you help them to calm down their autonomic nervous system, that often is enormously helpful to their immune system and their overall well-being. So she, um, this patient who had a negative mold test, who I was surprised that she did, um, has really benefited a lot from doing the Gupta program, from doing an autoimmune diet. Um, and she's, you know, like... <laughs> The thing is about holistic psychiatry and what I do, patients have to be very motivated because it's a lot of work. It's very different than just saying like, okay, here's Prozac, you know, take two and I'll see you in three months. Like I'm asking them to make a lot of changes that are hard to make. And so I need a very motivated patient as a partner to have success. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Are there any mycotoxins that stand out to you that show the highest levels based on mold species consistently in your reports? Well, I mean, like um, ochratoxin is frequent, trichothecene is frequent. I don't know if those are species or if they're biotoxins themselves. You know, they're, they're produced by specific mold species. So right, like- right. So, so the, I know the, I know the name of the toxins more than the mold species. So, ochratoxin, aflatoxin, um, trichothecene, um, gliotoxin. Those are all like really pretty common ones. 
I was one of the people who lived in a water damaged building for years and suffered from great depression and anxiety and treated with medications for many years until I realized the root cause of my illness. And I'm what our group considers a hypersensitive, which we all are here. So the way that I now know if I'm in an exposure, especially if it's a bad exposure, my heart will start to increase in heart rate. I don't have anything mentally that I'm feeling anxious about or a change in my emotion. It's just my body reacting to something. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. You are. Yes, I am. You know, like if I, if I go like now when I travel, I have to be really careful that the hotel room is not moldy because I get a whole characteristic syndrome that I know is um, that there's mold and I can't get out of the room fast enough because it makes me feel so anxious and like weirdly guilty. And like, I get this pain between my shoulder blades and I start needing to urinate every five minutes like this whole thing happens to me and I'll know that I'm being exposed to mold did you have an exposure that sensitized you or did you get sensitized by your patients no 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 not by my patients no no I I had a I had a situation um I mean I don't I mean I can point to when I understood about it but I don't know if it preceded that um it was a very interesting thing that happened I have a blog. I've had a blog since 2011 and I have a number of readers and um, a reader wrote to me and said, you know, Dr. Zafrir, given your other interests, this was like in 2016, given your other interests, I think you really um, would be interested in knowing about mold toxicity can cause all kinds of psychiatric symptoms. And um, she referred me to um, a very good article by Mary Ackerley called Brain on Fire. And so she sent me a lot of resources and I wrote back and thanked her and I filed the email intending at some point to, you know, dig into it, but not at the moment. And I happened to be um, doing a teacher training course that year in Kundalini Yoga. And I had a finished basement that used to be my children's playroom. And there had been, um, after a renovation in my house, the contractors had attached the downspouts of the house, facing the house rather than away. So the first time for after 15 years of living in the house, the basement flooded. And unbeknownst to me, there was just tremendous levels of mold down there. And so I was going down the basement to do this like hour long, heavy breathing practice. And I started to feel more and more anxious and bloated, my ears ringing, um, depressed. I was like, I was like, like losing my mind. And I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? I think I felt so bad. I stopped going down there. And luckily for me, when I get away from the acute exposure, I recover. But then I started thinking about that email from that patient, like, or that, that reader. And I got it out and I followed the links. And then I had somebody come and test my basement. And sure enough, that was the issue. And that is what started me on learning about all of this. It seems like a lot of us have an exposure that gets places us on our journey. It's interesting that you also have what we call the mold radar. The 
Mold radar is kind of our natural body's warning system is how we refer to it. So we know, like you said, when to vacate a hotel room. Yeah, like 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 flee, you know, because it's so bad. Yeah. Our organization is really big on like not trying to silence that alarm and kind of using it to tell you when you're near something. So that's a big part of our teaching is like, you're not anxious, you're not crazy, you're reacting. So figure out where you're by and get it away from you. You know, that being said, like, I think that once um, the body has been triggered that way, it's possible for the body to become really hypersensitive and to overreact at times to things. And um, that's where the Gupta program can be helpful in terms of um, not that you wouldn't know that, you know, there was something, but that it wouldn't be as dysregulating as it is. What if the dysregulation is the immune system like begging the body to pay attention to a warning. You, you, you pay, you pay, att- you pay attention, but you know, you don't have to like fall apart. You know, you don't have to. Um, well, can you goop to your way out of staying in a bad hotel room? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> so that's kind of my point. No, yeah. no. Well, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's different. You want to get away from the toxic environment, but you don't want to be, you know, just constantly reacting. Cause there's, there's, there's a lot of mold around. It's just that a certain level, you know, like at a certain level, it, 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 we can't avoid like any mold, you know? Right. Like because mold is everywhere, but water damage there. mycotoxins aren't everywhere. No, but that, I mean, I think there needs to be like a certain level of tolerance, you know, um, that otherwise life becomes unlivable. It, it it may be, I mean, I'm just wondering out loud here as we're talking, it may be that the certain level of tolerance is there until the immune system is pushed past a point of injury. I'm not sure. Because, you know, we're not born with this level of sensitivity. Some exposure happens and then it develops. So it's just curious. Um, we did talk to Gupta about his training program. Um, because we liken this illness to a peanut allergy, you know, one molecule of mycotoxin to a hypersensitive individual could make them feel like they have to run out of the room, like how I feel around contamination or how you feel in a bad hotel room. So we asked Gupta, you know, what about a peanut reactor? If their immune system has been injured, could they, you know, could they use this, this system to avoid reactions? I don't remember what he said. Alicia and Eric, do you guys remember what he said? Yeah, he said that his program was directed at people who have a maladaptive fight or flight response that goes into overdrive at the mere thought of being exposed to mycotoxins, even when there's none actually present. Which is, of course, not something that would happen with uh, peanut reactivity. I mean, if a peanut reactor reacts, there's definitely something there. Right. Yeah, I think he said um, the Gupta program would not cure someone who has a peanut allergy. So that was kind of like the basis for us to say, okay, then the Gupta program essentially would not be useful for someone who's mold hypersensitive because they themselves also have an immune system injury, like a person with a peanut reactivity. So then that kind of like (laughs) closed the door on that for us. 
Um, well, I, I know in my practice, it's extraordinarily useful. That's what Dr. Nathan says too. So it seems to me that there's a certain amount of people who are driven into some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder from mold. That's, that's what I think, Eric. Yeah, this is extremely useful for them. But unfortunately, when they say this addresses the root core of the pathophysiology, it's an implication that this is largely a mental maladaptive response, which, of course, throws things into the psychiatric realm and is sort of an inducement for immunotoxicologists to not pay attention to it because as far as they're concerned, the, the people themselves are claiming there's no toxin present. It's simply their fear of mold. No, so that's, that's not their department. That seems like making things very black and white. Exactly. I'm, I'm one of those real black and white people. <laughs> it's, it's a hairy situation. And it's something that we go back and forth on all the time because, you know, we're like, don't silence your alarm. Like you need that to let you know that you're in a bad place. That's your indicator. That's, you know, your body is telling you run away. Well, um, I think you know, the body will tell you to run away and then you'll use the Gupta program to calm yourself down, you know? But what um, if that gets people to stay in environments where there's contamination or an improper remediation? I don't think that's, there's a, there's a danger of that. You think because of the severity and the symptoms, like the reaction severity like if it's a really bad reaction gupta program doesn't work then that is an indicator to say hey get out you know that's what i think and, and anyhow i don't i mean in general my philosophy is like i might not understand exactly how something works and i think probably most of the time i don't understand exactly but i see what works you know like i'm very much all about what is like clinically effective and observing you know like what helps people well in my experience uh, a lot of people went through the, the toxic mold experience and simply got out without any maladaptive fight or flight response afterward. They just got out and it's like, oh, well, looks like I got poisoned and that's it. So the, uh, these programs, when they make the assumption that everybody is now developed, um, well, shall we say, an overblown fear of, of toxic mold, it doesn't really address the people who didn't move into this um, conversion disorder type response. It's not conversion disorder. I think that's really mixing things up, you know, like, and maybe we're talking about different populations because I'm talking about people who are coming to see me, you know, it's expensive. Mm -hmm. They're crossing the threshold of a psychiatrist. They're suffering. They want help with something. They're not like, Oh, I had a mold exposure and I'm good. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that um, just go to doctor to doctor and they get no help at all. So, of course, everybody winds up uh, going to a psychiatrist at some point. I did. Yeah, I think we all did here. And it, it's just it's awesome to know that you are a, a psychiatrist of knowledge in this in this field, because there's so many that don't know um, what's going on. And I kind of want to uh, push forward through the conversation here and just talk about your Psychology Today article. And you were mentioning uh, prior in the conversation that you were having some issues with publishing that. And maybe well, not, with, not, with that, not with that one in particular, but there was another article that I wrote that was very good and very important. And they refused to publish it. Actually, they asked me to amend it, which I did. She then said, okay, thank you. It's good now. She published it. And then there was this outcry from other readers and they retracted it. It was, they, it was about um, electromagnetic frequencies. 
and the toxicity of that. And they just refuse to like keep the article there. Amazing. I developed EMF sensitivity as a result of my exposure to toxic mold, but uh, that was the first symptom to go away after I started extreme mold avoidance. Have you heard of mold avoidance? Heard of what? Mold avoidance? I've heard of it. Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah. Is that something that you um, recommend when you're working with um, patients that are mold injured? Is that kind of like the first step for them is to like get away from the mold or, or how? Well, you know, we're not going to get well. We can do all the things that we're going to do. And if you continue to live in this moldy house, it's going to be like, you know, trying to bail a leaky ship with a can or something like that. It's just, it's not going to work. So that's good. I mean, it's, that's always like the first step is like getting away from the mold, but it's always the hardest step. I think a lot of people undermine how hard it can be (laughs) because the nuance and getting out of your moldy home and then addressing your belongings. And then if you're hypersensitive, then addressing that. And it's like a whole series of situations. And I'm just wondering like how, how you deal with patients and, and helping them through that. Well, I mean, the first step is to try to determine, you know, is it from a current exposure? Because a person could have um, symptoms of toxic mold that isn't due to where they're living currently. It may have to do with they went to summer camp and it was like totally moldy there, or the school that they went to was very moldy, that their current environment may be, you know, mold free, but they're having symptoms because their body has been colonized by a previous exposure. So um, I have an environmental uh, inspector, somebody who's in New Hampshire, who's very good, and she will travel to Massachusetts and to my patients' homes and, you know, figure out if there's some problem with the environment and then help with the whole remediation, you know, make a recommendation about who they should um, contract with. Yeah, that's what threw uh, researchers off the track for many, many years, is they assumed that if you had toxic mold illness, it had to be in your home. The idea that you could pick up a exposure at a school or a place of employment sufficient to be a driving force in continued severe symptomology, that simply didn't occur to me. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. Moving along with the way that we kind of deal with um, or use mold avoidance is what we were talking about earlier with the Gupta program is as far as your symptoms are sort of like a guiding uh, light for you. It's an indicator. It's a notifier to let you know that, you know, this is a bad place. So mold avoidance is, is more than just like getting out of a home or getting out of a school and staying away. It's more about using those alarm systems, anxiety, the depression, the symptoms that you exhibit 
to stay away. And that's, that's sort of our specialty because we deal with the subset of the population of the mold injured population that are hypersensitive. And so these are the ones that, you know, are moving 20 times in their lifetime and they they have the MCS and they're living in their cars and they, no one can help them because of their sensitivities, because no one's really understanding this from a, an immune system damage point of view. So that's kind of where we come in and we bridge that gap to really provide them with the specifics on what they can do to avoid moving forward. Because as you say, I mean, people want to live a normal life, right? We can't sit here and like live in a cave and not (laughs) do what we want to do. So we bring a sense of normalcy back to people's lives um, with the way that we teach mold avoidance. And these are basically founded on Eric's um, principles of what he learned in the army. Um, as you know, teaching, or he was learning about biological warfare and he also had a really bad mold exposure in one of Hitler's bunkers, believe it or not. And so all of that kind of came together to build a program for people to navigate, um, their extreme sensitivities. So, um, it's a journey and I know it's definitely probably been a journey with you as well. Um, I'm sure there is patients that you deal with that don't get well. And you have a hard time helping them. And we definitely would probably think that those would be the hypersensitives that need an extra level of support. Um, Now, going back to who you treat, um, how prevalent is this sort of within your patient base? Like, are you seeing more and more mold sensitive, mold injured people? I I mean, many patients, as I said, I would say, you know, patients who I mean, patients come to see me for different reasons. Like I have a lot of spiritual interests and, you know, some patients who, you know, don't really have any, you know, obvious immune system regulation, but they're wanting to work with a psychiatrist who has like um, a particular interest in spiritual matters, or they've had unusual experiences and they know that I would be open to hearing about them and wouldn't say that they were, you know, psychotic. And um, so there's those people that, are not like particularly like I wouldn't test them for mold toxicity or there's people who, you know, I'm a psychoanalyst. People come and they want to be in psychotherapy with me and um, they're not necessarily the mold patients, but the patients who have like complex chronic medical stuff, in addition to their psychiatric symptoms, I would say like 90% of those have mold. Amazing how swiftly this has become a major prevalent problem. 35 years ago, this was absolutely unheard of. Well, you know, like, I mean, some, I, I believe that some of this has to do with, you know, the changes in the ways that buildings are built, you know, like there's materials that are used that are likely to get moldy. There's um, efficiency standards that have to do with like making homes energy efficient so that there's like little air circulating from the inside and the outside. So everything that is in the house is kind of trapped in the house. But I mean, it's got to also be about awareness, you know, like, like you don't see what you don't know about. So like previous to 2016, I was not testing patients for mycotoxins. And I'm sure that patients were showing up who had mycotoxin toxicity, you know, but I, I didn't know to look for it myself. Interesting. There's a really great article on your website where you talk about um, certain disorders like EDS and 
you know, dysautonomia, I think I, hopefully I said that right, fibromyalgia and all this other stuff. And, And these are sort of things that are not recognized from the medical paradigm. And a lot of that, these- that was one that psychology today really like, well, first of all, they, they edited it without my permission, even though apparently I give permission to, for them to edit it just by being one of their writers, but they took out the stuff about mold that was in the article. They took out the stuff about mast cell activation that was in the article. Um, to, they said they cut it down to the appropriate length. The full article is on my website, but they took that piece and they published it on multiple different pages of theirs in chronic pain and um, chronic medical problems. And they, they published it all over. And I had such an outpouring of gratitude from the EDS community, you know, like somebody saw it and put it on their boards and people wrote saying they were in tears because they'd been so pathologized over the years um, because nobody could figure out what was wrong with them. And they were constantly going to doctors because they felt horrible and they were having so many problems and parents were, you know, being accused of kind of medicalizing their child when the child had like a real underlying problem that was not psychiatric and was not the parents, you know, fears. Uh, So that was a very, um, that was an important piece. Wow. I'm sad to hear that psychology today was imparting such crazy censorship. And I'm curious, did you ask them like, here's my article here. It is in full. I like it the way it is. Why did you apparently they have, they have guidelines about, they have guidelines about um, length and um, apparently mine exceeded the length. So they took the liberty of cutting out what they wanted to cut out of it. And I had to write back to them because they left a quote at the beginning of the article that was by Andrew Weil. And they left off that it was by him. And I said, look, you either take out the quote or attribute it to him because I don't want to be, you know, plagiarizing Andrew Weil. And um, so, no, it's very, it's, it's, it's challenging for me to deal with them. You know, like, I, I feel like they are really very corporate and, um, but, you know, like the reason that I continue to deal with them is like, because of, for instance, that Ehlers-Danlos article that meant so much to so many people. And otherwise people would not come to my website. They wouldn't know of me. I mean, this really had like a big reach. So you have to be sort of like pragmatic and say, okay, you know, I'll work with them and I'll hold my nose, you know? Yeah, I get that. That's something that we struggle with every day with how controversial we can be sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I thought that article was great because a lot of people do not associate EDS with mold toxicity. And you try to bring that up and it's like, ah, everyone in the community gets kind of wonky. But it was interesting that you wrote about that. And you even mentioned like chronic fatigue and fibro, but you actually mentioned that they are waste basket diagnoses. And I really would like for you to just expound upon that, like what you meant by that. Well, you know, you say somebody has chronic fatigue. Like, does that tell us anything? It tells us that they're always tired. Like, duh, right? That's not a diagnosis. That's like a a descriptor of a symptom, right? Yep. That doesn't tell us anything. You know, like... Well, actually, um, I can tell you a bit or two about that because I actually started chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm the first prototype for Holmes 1988 chronic fatigue syndrome. We didn't know what they were going to call it at the time. They, 
We just knew that we had provided the CDC with sufficient evidence that they had to do something. They were forced into sort of a gesture, a token gesture of scientific response. But at the same time, they didn't like mold illness. They didn't like this, this disease one darn bit. And this NIH guy who was prominent in the uh, Holmes Committee instantly on the spot decided not to give the syndrome a serious name. And he decided it had to be chronic fatigue syndrome. And the reason was is they, they were attempting to trivialize the disorder into having everybody think that it was chronic fatigue rather than the serious disabling toxic neuroimmune issue that it really was. And at the time I thought, oh, this, this will never work. That's, that's insane. I can't believe they're even going to try because people are going to read about chronic fatigue syndrome having its origin at Lake Tahoe in 1985. Then they'll come back and ask about it and their whole plot will fall apart when we explain this is what they did. But to my amazement, people really never traipsed up to Lake Tahoe and asked what happened here. I think that's kind of a neat story because it's really one of the greatest acts of medical deception in the history of the profession. And somehow the CD and, CD and the NIH, they got away with it. You know, there's something else I want to break, bring up. Um, and a, another whole big group of patients come to see me, not because of chronic medical stuff or mold or spiritual stuff, but because they want to get off of pharmaceutical medications. And most psychiatrists don't know how to taper people appropriately and wean them from medications. And um, when I initially wanted to write for Psychology Today and said kind of what I do in my practice, the person said to me, I'm not sure we're a good match because we don't want to shame people for taking pharmaceuticals. And that is like by far, like far from anything that I would wish to do. Um, but I have the, you know, sense that um, psychology today is very much, you know, like pro-pharma. And um, so it, it just becomes very difficult when there's all of these corporate interests. It's, it's interesting. Like, how do you operate in this space? Because that's sort of the, that's, that's how the field of psychiatry in psychology is, right? I mean, they're diagnosing based on questionnaires. There's really no biomarkers that are looked at. And it's really about, okay, what are your symptoms? Okay, here's your prescription and be on your way. Like, how are you operating in this field? I feel like you're so unique, um, taking a different approach. Right. Well, you know, like, that's why people come to see me because they don't like that approach, that other approach, you know, they, but, you know, like I have a conversation with them, you know, trying to assess their motivation before we meet for the first time, because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to change your diet. Margaret Mead said, it's easier to change a person's religion than to change their diet. You know, like it's, it's really a hard thing for people to do. And yet if a person is, you know, consuming regularly inflammatory foods, um, they're not going to feel better. I just think about all the people that go to psychiatrists because they have these chronic health conditions that their root causes are never addressed and they're just given medications. Like that's, that's, that's the rule. It's just so harmful. And, and it's like, how do we revolutionize this whole field? It's like, it just feels like a runaway train, you know? <laughs> not, not only that they um, are given prescriptions and don't address the root cause, but then people can't get off of them. 
because there's tremendous withdrawal syndromes from some of the antidepressants and from the benzodiazepines. And people are like stuck on these medications and they were not like warned that this might happen. I was not trained to know that um, these medicines could cause terrible withdrawal syndromes. And I was not trained to learn to wean people in a safe, appropriate manner. Like that was all stuff that, you know, I had to learn. And, and, you know, I supervise um, residents and fellows and they're not taught, you know, they're not taught to do that. They're taught nothing about nutrition, you know. Um, so even till this day, you're saying that uh, students that are looking to become psychiatrists are not taught how to wean people off medication. Not, not, appropriately, not appropriately. Wow. What What's the current recommendation? That they're well, like, the, I mean, the way that I was taught was like, okay, cut it by 50%, you know, wait a few days, cut it again by 50%, and then you're good to go. It's not the way it works. I mean, for certain people, that's okay. But for certain people, and with particularly with certain medications, like you really need to do it like 10% a month. And sometimes that involves having the medicine compounded and doing it extremely slowly and supporting them in multiple other ways, like with the Gupta program, like with diet, like with spiritual practice. Otherwise, you know, they um, have a really hard time getting off of the medicines. Yeah, I think about that. And I'm just thinking how dangerous, even cutting by 50%. I mean, people can literally die. Um, well, people don't usually die. Things. They don't die, but they suffer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I think I recently read about, you know, getting off opioids and how vitamin C can help, I guess, with the withdrawal symptoms, but that's not taught in medical school, you know, and it's like, how much information exists that's actually helpful that's not being used and, and assimilated into, you know, the medical care system. It's just, it, it really blows my mind on so many levels, how crazy like all of this is like, a systemic problem you know like the doctors yeah. are really educated the doctors are terribly unhappy you know most doctors are you know having to spend much more time with the medical record the electronic medical record than with their patients they're not given sufficient time to think about things or to behave in some kind of thoughtful way there are algorithms that they're obliged to follow and if they don't then the insurance company will not pay for the treatment um, the, the suicide rate amongst doctors, and I think even higher amongst psychiatrists is tremendous, you know, like people are miserable. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's doesn't make sense to demonize the doctors. It's like the whole system is just like tremendously broken. Yeah. But, you, know, you know, I struggle with that all the time because I don't really want to demonize and bash doctors, but at the same time, where's the interface where we can complain and say, our concerns are not being addressed yeah. it's just they're they're puppets you know we're, we're trying to get around having to lean on doctors directly by going to researchers and saying look researchers you guys are supposed to be looking into this but without uh, a doctor's degree they don't listen to us yeah it's it's been tough um but you know we're not giving up and i think patient advocates really do have a a stronger will forward because we're not tied. You know, we've mentioned this in the past. We're not tied to licenses and, you know, a CEO of a, of a, a hospital and whatever else as um, kind of puppeteering 
the MDs and whoever else around. But I want to, I'm thinking about a story that we heard last year from a military mom who was in a moldy military house and the military was doing everything they could or the property managers, sorry, were doing everything they could to just kind of dampen the situation. And she had gone to so many doctors and they diagnosed her with, I don't, is it the son or her who would be diagnosed with Munchausen's disorder by proxy? She, um, she would, she would be diagnosed. She would be right. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about all of, all of these things like conversion disorder, fictitious disorder, yeah. Munchausen's refrigerator mother, like all of these terms, like who's coming up with these terms? <laughs> Yeah, well, psychiatrists have to keep changing the names so that we don't nail it down and find out exactly what they're talking about. No, there's there's a lot of ignorance, Um, and you know it's 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 unfortunate in medicine. A lot of times, when like people don't understand something, then they say it's like all in your head. Yeah, how many how many mold patients? How many mothers come to you and they have this Munchausen's by proxy from another doctor? Like how? That's rare. It's rare. It's rare. Okay. Does it even exist? Um, I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know that if there was really something be, I mean, I, I mean, I think there's been stuff caught on camera, honestly, of like, like a very troubled person doing something, you know, to harm their child to, you know, get care. But I think it's like super, 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 can't even say how many super rare. Yeah, there was one case of a mom caught on camera in the hospital putting salt in a feeding tube. Something like that. It's, but I mean, mm-hmm. it's, that's, that's really very unusual. But in this case, it was the neurologist accusing the mom of Munchausen by proxy because the son had suddenly des- developed OCD within eight weeks of moving into this new home. And he was an all-star pitcher. And he went from all-star literally to completely non-functional. And the neurologist was like, well, sometimes these things happen. Have you ever heard of Munchausen by proxy? And that's how, that's how the mom's neurology visit went. No, it's, it's horrible. You know, like their child is sick and then they're turned into this monster. So are these type of disorders and these things taught and, and when you become a psychiatrist, like, are like, is there a class where they're just throwing out all these terms and this I is mean, it's just, know, it's just part of the, it's the whole part of the diagnostic canon you know and yeah. i mean i like i remember um i remember in medical school um doing an internship in neurology and there was a patient who um had a seizure disorder but she also had like pseudo seizures like there was like a combination of the two she had real seizures and then she had pseudo seizures but like these days i wonder if she really had pseudo seizures or if it was some kind of manifestation of mast cell activation which was being called pseudo seizures um but like before i knew you know like before i knew about the kind of stuff that i know you know i would think somebody had a conversion disorder if they you know just had some very you know some kind of paralysis that couldn't be explained by any kind of you know anatomical had no anatomical explanation, you know, like it, it, it takes, you know, people just don't know stuff and you have to learn in order to, um, you know, understand what you're seeing. Yeah. And in the uh, mold world, we see a lot of people whose immune systems are suppressed by mold and they go on to 
get strep and develop pandas. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, I mean, we haven't but, talked very much about mast cell activation, but like most of the mold patients have that, you know. Right. And they tend to think of mast cell activation as being the root cause rather than the result. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's like Neil Nathan is my mentor. And um, that's, I really appreciate him because he doesn't stop at, you know, treating mast cell activation. He looks like, why does the person have this? You know? Yeah, I noticed that Dr. Nathan has completely abandoned his former role as a chronic fatigue syndrome doctor and is now gung-ho on mold all the way. Well, chronic fatigue is often a result of mold. Well, that's why I started the syndrome was for mold. Mm-hmm. So actually, chronic fatigue syndrome is for mold. Well, not always. I think it can be from other kinds of... Like, no, I'm talking about the original chronic fatigue syndrome, the actual thing that baffled Dr. Gary Holmes into writing the definition. See, that was the thing about um, doctors not really looking into this, how the syndrome began because we knew about the mold at the time, but this didn't translate into any kind of training or research. They simply made up a definition. And from that point on, nobody looked any further. And if they had come back to exactly what Dr. Gary Holmes was totally confused by, they would have known that it was sick teachers and sick buildings and known that there was toxic mold in these buildings. So there again, it's kind of an amazing medical detective story, how this entire thing got to be so well known without the core beginning of this ever being investigated. Now, as Alicia mentioned, I was extremely fortunate because during the Cold War, I got sick by mold in Hitler's bunker. And at the same time, I was trained in biological warfare. And every, every biological agent cross-contaminates. There's none that don't. Whether it's blister agent, nerve agent, radiological, it all cross-contaminates. So I had this training in mind when I first got out and began running into mold blooms. I'm going, well, it's the same thing. It doesn't have to be in my house, or it doesn't even have to be in my place of employment. I can go through a plume, get it on me, carry it home, and that'll give me nightmares because this stuff is all over my pillow. So I immediately followed my training, did decontamination, invented a strategy called extreme avoidance, which was to utilize the same controls as if I were in the army reacting to a biological warfare agent and had spectacular success. So my my story, you've undoubtedly seen it. It's in four of Dr. Shoemaker's books. Okay. Well, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining us. It was a great conversation with um, Judy, Dr. Safrier. She is a psychiatrist who is helping the environmentally injured patients along with other patients. Um, and so we definitely appreciate your presence here today and we hope you have a wonderful day. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.